0: Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. This week, we are continuing our series focusing on oral advocacy at the Supreme Court. We are very lucky today to have Michael dreven as our guest. Michael spent 24 years as the Deputy Solicitor General in charge of the federal government's criminal docket. He has argued 107 cases at the court and he has briefed hundreds more. He's now a partner at Omelvny and Myers where he is the co-chair of the firm's White Collar Defense and Corporate Investigations Practice. And we are thrilled to have him
1: here. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So you argued your first case in 1988. Has your approach to oral argument changed over time? either because of your experience arguing or because the court has changed or both?
1: Uh, It's an excellent question. And I'm sure that my approach to advocacy has changed quite a bit. I started in a position of abject terror of arguing in front of the Supreme Court and it's progressed to slightly less terror. And part of that is the comfort level of knowing that the justices got to know me and my style. And I became a little bit more comfortable with a conversational approach with them. And I progressed very much to the idea of learn the core of my case, try to anticipate the questions that are at the core of the case and that I should be prepared to answer, and everything else try to work back into what I think the case is really about but it did not start off that way in my very first argument.
0: So we're going to ask you about that in a second, but have you changed the way you argue in the past couple of years because of the shift in the format of oral argument?
1: I have not. I did the bulk of my arguments in front of the court when we were limited to 30 minutes as a party and 10 minutes as an amicus and I missed the whole COVID audio only sequential questioning format. And I'm not sorry that I missed that. I did come back and argue a couple of cases last term with the new approach, which features a two minute um, introduction in which they do not interrupt you and potential seriatim questioning so that they can have you up there as long as you like. I'm not a enormous fan of that uh, process, but I do recognize that it benefits the court in that they all get a chance to explore their questions right down to the bottom. And the only change that I really made is, I think I like everybody else prepares and reads a two minute statement to the court. And I had never engaged in any reading to the court in any of my previous arguments.
0: People used to get in trouble for reading their opening statements.
1: Now you have to craft them very carefully and they listen to them and frequently will pick up on discrepancies between your oral statement and what you said in your brief. So you really need to be careful about what you're saying in those first two minutes.
0: Then we're actually going to circle back to that in a moment, too. But let's talk about your first oral argument. Tell us about it. What was the case?
1: I arrived at the Solicitor General's office in 1988, and I was handed a case that had been briefed by somebody else called United States versus Halper. And it was one of the last direct appeals from a district court to the Supreme Court before the appeal process was almost entirely over omitted. In the United States versus Halper, the government had brought a false claims case against a doctor who had overcharged by $9 on 65 separate procedures. So he had inflicted $585 in loss on the government. But because the False Claims Act entitled the government to collect $2,000 per false claim, he was assessed $130,000 in damages. And the district judge said that this was gross injustice and violated the double jeopardy clause because Halpert had previously been convicted and he invalidated the statute. As a result, it went straight up to the Supreme Court. Everybody else who had briefed the case took a look at it and said, our case law is very, very strong and the facts are totally outrageous. Let's give it to the new guy. <laughs> so I inherited this case from a deputy and an assistant who were very glad to help me get ready for it and put me through an absolutely brutal first moot court with other members of the SG's office in which I was fairly close to reduced to tears because of the endless hypotheticals. We were taking the position that any civil penalty could not trigger double jeopardy and the uh, hypotheticals sort of write themselves. What about a billion dollars in penalties? What about taking your house and your property? And our answer to all of those was, hey, no problem. Mr. Halper did not actually appear on the other side of the case. He was broke and uh, hiring somebody to do a Supreme Court case was out of his reach. And it tells you how different the climate is from now to then that no one reached out to Mr. Halper and volunteered to do his case for free. So the court appointed an amicus to represent the judgment, to defend the judgment of the district court. And the amicus appointed was another advocate making his first argument before the Supreme Court, turned out to be John Roberts, future Chief Justice. Of him, yes. So we both get to the Supreme Court and we are uh, you know, competing for who is paler and looking more about to pass out. Um, right before the argument started, I was sitting there looking at that clock above the court and sort of envisioning myself like Harold Lloyd hanging onto it in a movie desperate not to fall down and wondering what this was all gonna be like. And John Roberts leans across behind the podium to me. And with a very wan smile says, would you like to settle? (laughs) Uh, There wasn't time for either of us to bring that off. The whistle blew, the court announced that it was in session. I stood up, I began with my very well-crafted opening. I got about 20 seconds into it. Justice Scalia leaned over and he said, I don't really understand this. You know, Halper got hit with $2,000 per false claims doesn't Congress understand the concept of volume discounts? The entire courtroom burst into laughter. Um, I'm pretty sure it was at his joke and not by virtue of the fact that my morning suit was borrowed from somebody else. And the, uh, the pants could best be described as kind of high water bell bottoms, if you remember that style.
0: <laughs> I do. Uh,
1: but the laughter uh, died down and somehow I got through my first argument um, even though I did manage to lose it unanimously.
0: And then you came back and it couldn't have been that bad because you did 106 more.
1: I did somehow, yeah, I, I I treasured the fact that I survived that argument and I took the transcript home and I read it several times as proof that I actually had stood up and survived uh, that experience.
0: That is a fabulous story. I want to go back to something you have mentioned, which is opening statements. You now get two minutes to speak uninterrupted. And so you touched on this already a little bit, but how do you craft that opening these days and what exactly are you trying to accomplish with it?
1: So I I should back up and say that my preferred style, and I would do this if the court were so inclined, is to simply stand up and and start talking. And I would usually try to say something that seemed to me to be intuitively appealing about the case, maybe the central thesis, maybe the consequences if the court were to rule the other way. And I would try to look at them all in the eyes and hope to draw a question. Because my view is that nothing really happens at the Supreme Court until the justices are asking questions. It's at that point that you find out what's on their mind They uh, reveal to you, all of them now, what they think are the weak points in your case, and it gives you a chance to make a difference. Plus it starts the conversation between the justices, which is after all the real purpose of oral argument. They're talking to each other through counsel. If you can provide some help, some nugget of information, some new vantage point in response to the questions, that is good, but otherwise it's the court having a conversation with itself. So I was not really a great fan of highly prepared and scripted opening statements. I think oral speech is more easily understood if it's generated spontaneously. It's very different from written speech, which you can craft in a very complex manner with footnotes to add additional nuance. You cannot do that in oral speech. And the justices understand better, I think, when you were speaking to them without the benefit of a prepared text. That said, uh, there's no choice now. So the art of crafting a prepared text is making it sound as much as if it is spontaneous speech as possible while retaining the precision that is needed for an opening statement that can be scrutinized as a, a mini oral brief. I guess my strategy with it is to say the things that I think are the most important features of what I want the court to do, and then turn to refuting the best arguments on the other side. And not being too rhetorical, but finishing with enough of a rhetorical flair so that it sounds like a case that the justices should want to vote for you when they get down to the conference.
0: Do you have any morning of argument traditions? Do you eat something specific? you go a particular place to get your coffee, anything like that?
1: My uh, almost invariable tradition before is to have salmon for dinner on the theory that it's protein and brain food. On the morning of the argument, hopefully I will have gotten some sleep, most important thing. I wanna give myself plenty of time to get to the court. I always thought that getting to the justice department for the van that would take me up to the court was the end of my preparation. If I have gotten that far, everything else is going to take care of itself. Richard Lazarus, who was one of my mentors in the SG's office used to say, it's like a wedding. You get to the car that's going to take you off to the event and everything just takes over from there and you don't really have to think about it. So my only tradition is not any particular food, but just getting to the court on time.
0: Well, and when you were in the SG's office, it was like a wedding too, in that you were wearing a morning suit. Yes. So (laughs) you were really ready for that wedding. Um, Are you a minimalist in terms of what you take up to the lectern?
1: I am a total minimalist. I started out with, trying to take up a uh, one page of notes that had things in big block letters on them so that they were easy to read and it didn't make it look like you were reading. And I got to a point where there were a few advocates who were going up without any notes at all. And I decided, well, why not try it? And I first tried it in moot courts at the SG's office. And then I decided to just go cold turkey and do it at the court and I never went back. That was probably after 30 or 40 arguments. So for a long time, I did bring things up, but I am much happier without anything there. It just facilitates making eye contact with the court and speaking to the court in a conversation. This is what everyone says about what an oral argument should be. It should not be an argument, It should not be a tense emotional contest. It should be a conversation. And I think it's a lot easier to have a conversation when you have nothing on the podium in front of you that's gonna tempt you to look down and do prepared stuff. That said, if a case is a statutory case, I will have up at the podium my brief with a tab on a page where the particular feature of the statute is located so that I can look at it and talk about it with the court. If the court wants to do that. And I did have a case recently where Justice Thomas asked me where in the petition appendix is the proposition to be found that you're attributing to the court of appeals. Unfortunately, I hadn't put a tab on that exact spot. So I had to just go with the trust me, it's there approach. But I came back on rebuttal and told him where it was exactly.
0: When you're in that conversation and you have a justice whose vote you think probably isn't in play or definitely isn't in play and that justice is peppering you with questions. How do you handle that?
1: In the moment, I try to be as responsive as possible to the justice who's asking the line of questions. This is even more inevitable in the current format where the seriatim questioning after the half hour means that whoever wants to keep going at you will go at you as long as possible to get satisfied that you've answered the question. The best and number one thing to do in that situation is actually answer the question. If you're getting a question and it's a yes, no question and it's capable of a yes, no answer, start with yes or no. It's much less frustrating to the justice to hear a answer that doesn't seem to get to the point. If I can't get to the point because I'm not sure then my approach is generally to say, I'm not sure entirely what the answer to that question is, but this is the analysis that I would run through to get there. That is not entirely satisfying all the time to a hostile justice, but at least shows your work on the spot. And as long as you can give that answer and then come back and say, but I know how mine comes out, then you're good to go. The only technique that I have ever tried to use to escape from being pinned down by, you know, say a barrage from Justice Scalia uh, comes to mind is just to look around the courtroom and try to make eye contact with some other justice and hopefully give them the space and the invitation to either come into my rescue or just change the subject. The worst of these was a case where. I was giving an answer about the record in a labor law case, and I don't think I was 100% right about the record, and the justice got me on it. And it took about five questions to walk back my first answer and kind of confess, you got me, and move on. And as soon as I did that, Justice Stevens started asking questions, trying to rescue me by saying, no, the record really did say what I had originally said. That was a uh, experience where I, I did a metaphorical eye roll and just went with it.
0: Have you ever had questions that you just didn't anticipate? Yeah, the SG's office and, and your moods are are very thorough, but you know sometimes there's a question and then what do you do?
1: Yes, definitely. I've had questions that, that aren't novel. The justices are amazing. And sometimes the hypotheticals even go beyond what we can generate in a moot court. Most often though, it's been factual. It's been something about the case, something about uh, the world that I just hadn't thought about whatsoever. Um, I I argued a case that involved kind of military dishonor and the chief justice who was a military history buff wanted me to say what had happened to, um, Stanley Mudd in the civil war and whether he was ultimately vindicated in his effort to claim he really hadn't done the things he'd been accused of. And I did not know. Uh, And I did the only thing I could say under the circumstances, which is, I don't know, but I'll check and I'll get back to you. And I had to write a letter to the court that explained the uh, upshot of the legal proceedings.
0: What happened to Stanley Mudd?
1: I don't remember, but I I know that it's on record. I have a letter to the court. uh, We
0: can look it up, fair enough. (laughs) What kind of questions are the hardest ones to answer?
1: The hardest questions are the best argument on the other side of the case. And it's it's very case specific. Uh, Sometimes it's the untenable consequences of your position. So I can give you an example, a real-time example. I argued a case about whether uh, attaching a GPS tracker to the underside of a car was a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. And our position was that it was not because it did not intrude on any reasonable expectation of privacy because when people drive around, they uh, are in public. They can be observed by anybody. And there were a couple of Supreme Court cases that said that was not a search. And most people don't have deep personal feelings about the underside of their car so that it would be deemed the kind of trespass that would intrude on a property interest. So our position was the Fourth Amendment did not apply. Within around a minute of that argument, the Chief Justice said to me, so does that mean that you can attach a GPS tracker to any of our cars?
0: I remember this moment well, actually.
1: Yeah, and I said, you mean the justices of this court? (laughs) And with an angelic smile, like we would never do that to you. Then he said, yes, the justices of this court. And the logic of our position was yes. So you have to admit to that. And I knew that that was a question that I call a black hole question. It's the kind of question that you do not have a really good answer to and you may never emerge. You may just get sucked into that vacuum in space and it'll be eons before you ever come out of it. And I think that that was sort of true in that case.
0: What you've mentioned this briefly, but what what do you try to accomplish with your rebuttal?
1: Rebuttal is your last chance to give them a takeaway that when they leave the bench, they will remember they don't remember anything else about the argument. That advocate raised a really good question about what happens if we go the other way or. This is a reason why we're really best uh, to interpret the law in that way. So it's a one punch knockout and it, there, it doesn't always work, but uh, I can give an example from a case that I argued about polygraphs. The military had a rule that polygraph evidence was not admissible for anything. And the defendant in this case, United States versus Sheffer. Had obtained a polygraph uh, result that exonerated him. It was a question of whether he'd used drugs. He passed polygraph tests that he hadn't. He wanted to admit it. And so in my rebuttal, I made a couple of legal points and then said, and finally, the defendant argues that polygraph is a reliable way of showing that he was telling the truth. But in fact, there is a manual called Beat the Box that provides several well-known techniques for evading the physical symptoms that are associated with deception in a polygraph. One of them is clenching your muscles. Another one is uh, clenching your palms. And together, these techniques can undermine the reliability of the polygraph even in the hands of the best examiner. Thank you. So to leave them with the feeling that even if you think something was unfair here about excluding polygraph evidence, You should not jump to the conclusion that it's reliable just because it has the scientific patina around it.
0: Last question. What advice would you give to somebody who's arguing at the court for the very first time?
1: The key to argument is preparation and doing a series of things that will not only get you ready substantively, but will remove as many distractions as possible so that you can do your best job at having a conversation with the court. So there are basically four stages of preparation that I think you go through in order to get ready. The first is harvesting questions from the briefs on the other side and doing it with a very neutral, non-judgmental approach, not trying to solve the answers, uh, but trying to figure out what an intelligent, open-minded person will wanna ask you. Then you go back to the case material and you read all of the cases that you need to read. But this time you interrogate the cases, trying to find out how can they help you answer the questions that have come up. The third stage is translating what you know from your brief and the cases into an oral presentation. And I think the best way to do that is to talk to intelligent people, either lay people or lawyers who are not involved in the case and who are curious and are interested listeners, but they don't have infinite patience. So if somebody says, what is your case about? And you start giving your elevator pitch on the case and their eyes glaze over, it tells you, you do not yet have the narrative of your case. That's what you're searching for. What is the storyline here? What am I trying to get across? And then the fourth stage is doing moot courts. And I always would do two of them. The first one was exploratory and the second one was a dry run. So in the exploratory one, I'm looking to learn. In the dry run, I'm looking to hone my performance. Those are all the sort of formal preparation steps. But the other piece of it is doing things to reduce anxiety, getting familiar with the courtroom, uh, knowing where the podium is, knowing what your morning is going to be, laying out your clothes, Doing learning about the judges or justices so that you have removed everything that is going to distract you po- as in, insofar as possible from doing your best performance. And then I would advise using visualization techniques the way that athletes do. After all, I like to joke in my classes, we are appellate athletes. So you need to get yourself ready mentally and physically and visualizing yourself in the moment, answering questions and doing a good job is good psychological preparation for actually, for actually going to court. And then when you do it, you're there, you're ready to give your best performance.
0: This has been a real treat. Thank you so much, Michael Dreven for joining us.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. This season, we want to hear from you. Send us your questions about the Supreme Court at feedback at scotusblog.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. SCOTUS Talk is produced and edited by Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, James Ramoser, and Katie Barlow.